Hi, my name is Anne Huff with the Global Policy Institute, and you are listening to the Global Policy Institute podcast. With me today is Professor Jennifer Abe from Loyola Marymount. Professor Abe is Vice President for Intercultural Affairs, where she facilitates strong collaboration between university administrators and faculty and staff leaders to develop and implement programs, policies, and procedures that create and sustain an institutional culture characterized by diversity, inclusion, and equity-mindedness across the campus community. In this podcast, we'll be discussing rising hate crimes against the Asian American Pacific Islander community, as well as our experiences as Asian Americans. Hi, Professor Abe. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. So good to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Anne. Of course, I think that with everything going on against the Asian American Pacific Islander community, I felt that it was uh, kind of, I guess, vital that we have this conversation just to raise awareness and allow people to gain a better understanding of what's going on. Definitely. Yeah. It's not been an easy time for the community. Yeah. No, it doesn't, has not been. I guess my first question, just to start this off, is given the increasing rates of hate crimes against the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, can you provide some background on what this means in terms of the racism the community faces um, and has faced I know this is nothing new, but why do you think there's been more attention on it now than ever before? Well, I think one reason there's more attention is because of the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, what centering the Black community has done for the whole country, just as it did in the civil rights movement, has helped us raise our consciousness of racism, of different expressions of racism. and it has sensitized the country then when the increase in hate crimes and especially with the shootings in Atlanta that there's there's been a tension that there's never been on the API community before not with solidarity across groups and this is the new part the racism part and the invisibility of the API community that's the part that has persisted over time but um I feel like because of the Black Lives Matter movement and because of all of the people of all groups who have joined together in solidarity, there's been a receptiveness and an outrage that's shared, which has been very powerful. I don't know, how mm-hmm. have you felt just feeling everyone protest for, for against Asian hate? How has that been? I have felt very supported in some senses. Um, I was driving around like Venice uh, one day and there were a few people just holding signs up and I was like, oh, that's so nice to see that people are supporting Black Lives Matter, but they're also supporting the Asian community. And it was just nice to see that people wanted to support both and it's not like uh, you can choose one and that's it. That's my hope for this movement too, for all of us, that if we can see that it's not a zero sum um, proposition as far as support, that solidarity, if you're against oppression, you are against oppression. If you're against racism, mm-hmm. you know, you're working for for fighting injustice, however it manifested. And so feeling, receiving that support, receiving it from the black community, from the Latino community, from others, um, and being able to share it, that's that's the potential of this moment mm-hmm. that I'm really mm-hmm. excited about. Yeah, I've had friends reach out to me and just check in on me or let them know that they're there um, if I need support or someone to talk to, and I've really appreciated that. You know, and I come from a different generation than you. I'm, I'm going to be 57 this year, you know, and I'm five kids, you know. Um, between Mm -hmm. my husband and I and um, I was telling my daughter who graduated from LMU with women's and gender studies major and who has a lot more she's a lot more advanced in her thinking than I am in many ways but I'm so used to invisibility you know Um, when I grew up it was a very different environment and I think for your parents and others as well so to have this moment where Asian Americans are not invisible is really like, I mean, you're feeling it. And I, I think I, people of my generation are feeling it in an entirely other way. 
um, mm-hmm. it's kind of incredible. I've definitely had frustrations of just being invisible and having the Asian American community being invisible. And so it's, it is nice seeing that like we're not anymore. And I think that because we're not anymore, this is our time to really speak up and show people that we aren't the model minority. That's been so used against Asian Americans. And one form of internalized oppression, ironically, for Asian Americans is kind of taking that model minority myth and embracing it and being, a yeah, I'm not like other minority you know that 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 has been a danger in the community too so that being an asian american one like what is that because we come from so many backgrounds and cultures and languages if you're in asia you know there's no there's no sense of connection or there's it's not like we speak the same language or it's it's very different and there's a lot of countries Mm -hmm. that have animosities and bad histories you know between them but so even being in the U.S. and put, being put under this umbrella of API, you know, that's something that needs to be looked at um, just for itself. Um, and then the ambiguity of, you know, maybe some members of the community who have done well, you know, really embracing that. And and it's been used against other groups. That That was a whole thing of how it emerged is, taking this group that has some success stories and saying, see, can't you be like this group um, to oppress and hold down other groups? And so the ambiguity of being Asian American of in some instances you're seen as, you know, like, well, aren't you close to white? You know, and then in other instances, feeling very much the the receiving on the receiving end of of oppressive racist practices and not really having any credibility, you know, to to speak to that because of the the ambiguous nature of being Asian American in the larger society. So um, it's it's a tricky role because there are parts of the community, there are communities that have been here in the United States for a long time and and there are countries where you know that are immigrants are the most highly educated and among the most affluent so that wealth gap in the api community and the disparities between yes those there are those who have done really well we don't want to take away from their success and that that's the group that's been used then as oh look at the model minority but then not only has it been used to oppress other groups, black and brown and indigenous and otherwise, but also it has rendered invisible whole segments of the API community. Um, Groups that, refugee groups who came and had very, very few resources, faced a lot of trauma and violence in their home countries, endured incredible circumstances coming to this, this country and didn't receive any help because the numbers are too small um, Mm -hmm. in the larger scheme of, you know, um, other groups. And then if you lump them with Asian American, then disparities in income, opportunities, health insurance get masked by those that are not facing that. So it's been a real challenge historically. Can you give just a brief kind of history, um, just some history of Asian Americans in the United States, I think one of the things I've also struggled with is just the feeling of Asian American history just being kind of oppressed and looked over. Um, And now, I mean, I feel like people are paying more attention to it. Yeah. I mean, I think about, I will give you a, a very brief overview, even though I'm not a historian, but I think it's really important to understand that Asian Americans have been part of the history of this country and because of one of the stereotypes that we're perpetual foreigners. You know, where are you from? Go back to your own country. And, and um, you know, I think there are stories of, you know, um, Asian 
well, I, I don't want to get too far back because I don't, I don't, I'm not a historian. But let's start with some of the the legislation. You know, the first immigration law to exclude any group was against Chinese Americans. So, and even before this, that was in um, 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, but Asian immigrants to this country, just like non-white people from other groups, um, in the courts, court testimony from someone who was Asian was not admissible. So in 1863, the California state legislature um, formally ruled that testimony from Asian immigrants against whites were was not admissible in court. So then think about the violence that was done. There's no, if there was not a white person to testify, the testimony of an Asian person wouldn't count. So in 1871, one of the largest massacres um, at that time occurred in Los Angeles. And, you know, you think of L.A., the city where Elamie's located, and you don't think of anti-Asian violence in the earliest days. And yet, um, I think of Ruben Martinez, who's in the English department, he did a production um, downtown where he really lifted up early L.A. history. And I remember being there watching the filming of his of, of his work where he talked about the the massacre and lynchings of Chinese immigrants, um, 19 Chinese immigrants, including a young um, boy killed by a mob of about 500 men. And it was a small community. So this was over 10% of the Chinese Chinatown community at that time. The Page Act in 1875 explicitly excluding well, they said Oriental women, Chinese, Japanese, because because they were seen as somehow immoral or contributing immoral elements to to um, American society. So that those are things that preceded the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, so again, formally barring Chinese who are contributing to the Transatlantic Railroad, the great project where you know this construction of the railroad across the country, but you know, the final pictures don't necessarily give them credit for all the people who died um, and who worked hard to construct that um, involvement in the gold rush in California. Um, it just, you know, this, this sense of yellow peril or there's too many Asians, um, that sentiment goes back pretty far in our history. And that's when Japanese immigrants started coming because the Chinese immigration was stopped. And then, you know, pretty soon that started feeling like too much too. And the US government made an informal agreement with the Japanese government who severely restricted immigration from Japan. And that's known as a 1907 gentleman's agreement. In 1913, there were laws in California that were aimed at preventing Japanese from owning land. So these were laws that made aliens ineligible for citizenship, that's coded Japanese immigrants, um, were not eligible to own land. And Japanese Americans found ways around that because their children were US born, so they would buy in the name of their kids. Um, and that wasn't lifted for quite a long time. Of course, during World War II, you have Executive Order 9066 and the forcible removal of 110, 120,000 Japanese Americans, mostly from the West Coast, into internment camps, concentration camps. Um, that really was, I, I, you know, my parents immigrated in right before the 1965 Immigration Act in, in 1963. And I think I my family didn't personally go through that, but I would have I would have been removed, you know, as a Japanese American at that time. And you see the pictures of children and all that was lost and the in that in that time of um, moving Japanese Americans and um, that that never came back. Um, then you had, I remember this in 
college, I'm dating myself, but in 1982, the case of Vincent Shin, you know, he was at his bachelor party. He was 27 years old when he was killed by two white men beaten with a baseball bat because of their frustration with Japanese automakers and their perception that, you know, it's the Japanese car makers who were taking away their work. And here's this young Chinese man right before he was to be married who was killed. And that really galvanized the Asian American community. I remember that. 1989, a Stockton shooting. Over 30 elementary school children were shot at a uh, at school, at elementary school, and most of them were Southeast Asian refugees. Now, there was an outcry, but do people remember that? So the current increase in anti-Asian hate follows a pattern. Um, and Asian Americans are not really community to report. So these are definitely underreported figures, but that increase in explicit expressions of xenophobia, of people feeling that it's all right to assault, to verbally, to physically assault Asian Americans. And it really, I think, hurts all of us um, from all communities to see how this is perpetrated against the most vulnerable people. I mean, really, our country has come down to perpetrating violence on elderly people. It's kind of just mind blowing. Yeah, I've seen images of elderly um elderly people just so beaten up faces swollen and just and i've even seen videos of it happening and it's just so heartbreaking that well one that people want to ensue violence in the first place and then also that it's against someone solely because of their race and also elderly people it just it's a whole intersection that it's just it's heartbreaking and I think everyone feels that. Just what have we come to? You know, what kind of culture are we fostering of sentiment against groups in our society, the vulnerable, the marginalized, scapegoating, which we, we've done throughout history, but mm-hmm. and this is a particular expression in this moment against this community, but it really well, we should pause and reflect and and shift like who are we as Americans and is this what we can is this the best we can do this is not what anyone wants to be um, so who gets included in the definition of who gets to be American do Asian Americans get to be American how long mm-hmm. are we gonna hear go back to where you came from mm-hmm. where are you from um, so these questions of American identity have been with us from the beginning and they're very acute right now. I've always, I mean, recently, um, like I've just been more afraid to like go to my car alone at night or even just go to the store during the day or just do things alone because one, I'm a woman. And then second, now there's an added fear because I'm an Asian American woman. And so it's just been kind of hard like I I've just been more on guard I think when I go out places and like I check under my car I like carry my phone with me I have you know I just take so many precautions now it's heartbreaking Anne and I I hear my daughter saying that too and I have older parents you know I have a father who's 91 and I worry Mm -hmm. about them as I know a lot of people do but how much anxiety a trauma and you think just in different ways you know you probably i didn't have school shootings when i was younger you're a generation that's grown up with 9-11 and school shootings like how much trauma and anxiety can young people bear not just young but older too but we're we're getting so used to it that we need to really question this is this is not right. No mm-hmm. one should have to carry around this kind of this kind of anxiety. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the Midwest, um, in Kansas City, Missouri, and I also moved around New Kansas City, Columbia, Missouri. Um, but I wanted to come out to California because one, it's so much more diverse than the Midwest, and I thought, you know, I'd 
be I would fit in more I'd feel comfortable and safe but now I, I don't feel that because I feel like there's eyes on me and people see me and they're like oh she's Asian but they don't like actually see me they just see my race so that's a different kind of invisibility isn't it like mm-hmm. you want representation you want to go to a place where you're not you don't feel like you're in such the minority but then if you go to a place and we're in a time where being Asian feels like you're you're vulnerable your identity mm-hmm. makes you vulnerable that's that's hard yeah and I think I think every individual has a unique a unique story and experience and I think my what makes mine unique is that I'm I was adopted from China when I was one and I was adopted by white parents and so growing up I was I grew up in very like white culture so I, I don't have that connection to to my like Chinese Vietnamese culture and so I'm it's sometimes it's almost like an identity crisis sometimes because I'm like okay I grew up basically just you know assimilated into the white culture but then I sometimes I forget that like physically you can tell that I'm I'm Asian and so sometimes I think like I'm I'm a very like outspoken person and I speak up for things and um I think because the model minority status and just the stereotypes of uh, Asian people are quiet and they keep to themselves but then here I am I'm like oh I'm not gonna put up I'm not going to put up with that like I shouldn't that's not okay and then I think people are almost taken back sometimes when I do say something and I'm like oh wait like they aren't expecting that because they just think oh she's gonna be quiet that's so interesting and it's you know you're talking about how other people perceive you and then how you feel inside and how your background really has shaped that I I relate to you in the sense of I mean I my parents are immigrants from Japan so you know I'm a Japanese second generation Japanese American or Nisei I don't I don't I can't explain why but I've always been outspoken too you know I've I've never been quiet um and I and I have a very traditional Japanese American upbringing so I really can't even tell you why but um I think whatever the reason you know how how we end up as we are that the need to shift like modalities or code they call it code switching um you know in psychology about what's your cultural reality that you're in how do people read you how do they see you and then how does your behavior even without you realizing it sometimes adjust um to meet those expectations and um it's interesting what you're saying you know your experience of yourself and then when the environment shifts it's like oh yeah maybe people don't see you as as you feel inside mm-hmm. yeah yeah i was adopted from uh, wazhou china in the guangdong province um but so i i'm from china but then you know growing up people would be like oh where are you from and i'm like oh, i'm from kansas city like i don't know where else would i be from but then they're like no where are you from and i'm like what do you what do you mean they're like like and then they'll be like what are you and i'm like oh yeah. you want to know my my race my ethnicity you know and i was like well i honestly i, I don't know i'm adopted but like i didn't want to i didn't want to say that to people at, and i was just it was uncomfortable and and it's I, intrusive so many, mm-hmm, and so many people asked me and then some people just sit, tell me, they're like, oh, you look Filipino, you look this, blah, blah. I'm like, and I'm just like, okay, I guess that's what I am. Like, you tell me then. And so I, it just got to the point where I, I wanted to know myself, but I was also just so tired of people saying, well, what are you? That I, I did the 23andMe DNA uh, ancestry test. So I found out I'm Chinese and Vietnamese. So I was like, oh, that's cool. And so now when people ask me, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm Chinese and Vietnamese. And I think... I've, I mean, I, I think it's, I've found, I've been okay with, like, other Asian people asking me what I am, because it's something that we can connect with and share, but sometimes when, when white people ask me, it's just very intrusive and just kind of abrupt, almost. Yeah. So, depending on who's asking you, too, in the context, when, 
when it's kind of like people feel that it's their right to because i think in this culture we we just want to know we want to box people in to find our categories and then that that intrusiveness of feeling entitled to information about someone's identity maybe yeah that that should be questioned as well mm-hmm. and i think just the question of what are you i think that's it gives into the idea of othering like i i just think like what are you i'm like well let's see i'm a person i what do you mean what am i and that's one of the microaggressions are triggering especially when you're multi-ethnic or multi-racial like mm-hmm. yeah it it might be someone's curiosity but just the feeling like they they have a right to know or that you're constantly questioned mm-hmm. um, and having to account for it that that's not right I remember one time I had leftover Chinese food for lunch because the night before my parents and I, we did take out and I was eating it and at school and someone came up to me and they're like, oh, what are you eating? And I was like, I told them, they're like, oh, did, did your mom make that? And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, like, you know, your mom make it, you're Asian. And I was like, no, nope, it's from a restaurant. I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. I was with um, traveling and staying with some really wonderful older people, you know, grandparents of a friend in Alaska. And they wanted, you know, we wanted, they had their hospitality and, you know, we want to do something nice for them. And they said, well, could you make us a walk dinner? You know, like a traditional Asian. I was thinking, oh my gosh, I don't, really know how to use a walk I mean I made it up as I went along and it turned out fine but it is that perception that stereotype of what you ought to know and it gets into a stereotype threat where you feel really self-conscious of places you know I'm not particularly strong at math you know and that stereotype of Asians are good at math or you know if you drive in a way that maybe you do something that's not great you instantly feel the weight of the stereotypes of you know asian dry that that's the the oppressive nature i mean these might be comical in in these ways but where you're constantly feeling scrutinized and having to either disprove a stereotype or know that you can't get you can't ever be seen apart from the stereotype and it's hard um yeah Mm -hmm. i've had i mean going back to just i think I guess that almost model minority status and also just Asians kind of being in the stuck in the middle, I guess, of someone told me they're like, oh, you're Asian, you don't count, you're not a minority, like you haven't experienced anything. And I was just like, that's so wrong. Like I have, I am a minority. And I just, but then after hearing that, I felt like I couldn't really speak about my experience because it wasn't like as bad as others or like, big enough to even talk about so then I was like yeah, I guess I, I guess I'm not a minority I don't know but now I've realized like yes I am and that person was wrong and they shouldn't have said that that's one of the biggest challenges I think is you know how do you how do you both validate you know that oppression is oppression and at the same time you know for instance standing in solidarity with the black community you know the kind of racism that takes on its most acutest form against black indigenous um but that you don't get into this hierarchy um and that that you can stand in solidarity so it it is hard because you don't want to minimize anyone's experiences and you know being seen as a bad driver is not the same as like fearing being shot you know for being stopped um so i think that's a real challenge and the api experience you know i once got a word that i had been i had gotten a grant uh you know in my field a supplement and it was based on it was you know uh given to 
minority investigators. And they announced it at this conference I was at and said they'd follow up with paperwork. And I waited and I waited and nothing came. And I found out later following up that they had decided not to follow through because I wasn't actually an Asian American that counted, like East Asian didn't count. And so then it was a double thing of now East Asian, there's more privileged Chinese, Japanese, Korean, you know? So it's that duality of within group privilege and then invisibility because where do you count as a minority where do you not where it's not just one experience and mm -hmm. that that kind of ambiguity then can render like when you have feelings of like you were overlooked or you didn't you don't count both sides you don't get the same privilege as being a member of the majority even though you're seen as that and then your experiences as a minority also get flattened like those don't count either so there's a way in which you don't count both ways um, which can be really challenging and then discounting it yourself because well that's nothing compared to what other groups feel and and not wanting to make trouble or you know whatever culturally those messages might be so then the whole uh, effect is to just try to take up as little space as possible and then the invisibility just becomes overwhelming mm -hmm. yeah I think that I think that ties back to partially the identity crisis that sometimes I feel like I'm experiencing um, of again being raised in a white culture but also being Chinese Vietnamese and I'm like what what am I like I I really want to like, you know, explore my heritage and my roots and learn more. I, I want to go back to China and I, I want to just immerse myself basically, I guess. Um, but I think also sometimes I feel like, okay, well, I'm not white. It's like, I, I don't fit in there, but then I'm, you know, I'm Chinese, Vietnamese, Asian. And then I'm like, well, I don't necessarily fit there all the time. So I'm just kind of in the middle. And I'm like, oh, like, what do I do? Who am I? You got to find your community. Um, I, I would encourage you, though, I think immersing yourself in your heritage cultures, you know, even if it feels very distant, it, that information and that contact can be very helpful in figuring out your ground. I, I went to Japan for six months as a college student. And I remember first going and my whole family is there. I, I don't have any extended family in the United States. So with a lot of, I stayed with family, got to know my cousins. And the first feeling I had was one of overwhelming lightness. I had never experienced not being a minority. And I fit in. And it was an unbelievable feeling of just, I wanted just to be there and just to absorb it. And after six months, I mean, I, I still loved it, but something unexpected happened to me, which is I felt my Americanness. I'm not a Japanese person, I'm an American. And then thinking I'm an Asian American, I don't think I could have gotten my ground except for going there and totally immersing and feeling at the fit and then also then over time feeling the ways in which my being raised in this culture this country um, being able to also embrace that part of my experience so it's funny you think of identity as something you learn as you're younger but it's actually something you keep working out in your life um mm. so that's that's what we all get to do and we're all trying to find communities you know of belonging where we feel like we fit and sometimes it's unexpected where we can find that mm -hmm. yeah growing up in the midwest i i mean i heard the microaggressions the racist comments the discrimination all of that and i think 
I kind of I started to resent my my race and also where I was from and then that you know that just isn't healthy that creates just a an inner frustration and anger and I had to just I mean grow and then I had to like mature and under I had to understand that and unravel all of that um and I think that a lot of people experience just kind of almost a frustration similar to that of like you know where does where do you stand now that if you're in America but you know you hear all these different things against you yeah and the danger of that is you start internalizing it you know something's wrong with you or you wish you had you name it you know whatever it might be mm-hmm. when I was younger my aunt you know, gave me the option. She was really excited to give it to me that when I turned 18, she would pay for double-lidded surgery for me. I don't have big eyes. You know, I have single-lidded eyes. And that was a shock. You know, that first that she would think that would be a good thing. Then I had to think about it because, you know, you get the Chinese, Japanese, you know, kind of sing-song. I'm sure you heard it too. But, and you start feeling the the lesson than you know the sense of you're not as attractive or you're not this or you're not that because you don't look the way that the part you know that um that is seen as most desirable and I refused that surgery I told my aunt that was one of my first steps of of taking a stand against internalized oppression. No, I want my eyes just the way they are. You know, I don't need the double lids to make them look bigger. Um, And I was a, a teen, you know, at that time. But I think being able to identify the ways where internalized oppression, naming it for what it is, rather than just feeling yourself inferior, that's a really important first step Um, to standing Mm -hmm. against what society and it's not just as an Asian American it's as a woman like you said you know in all the ways um, there's constraints um, you know being more fearful not because you're fearful but because you're more vulnerable as a woman there's a difference even though that seems like a subtle difference in language there's a different there's nothing wrong with you but you're more vulnerable because of the way society deals and sees you so you read this book minor feelings an asian american reckoning i I did i i mean i as soon as i started reading it first chapter i mean even just like the small introduction i was like i started crying because i mean it was in the heat of everything it's like and i just just i think i mean that like that that week and then the following like two weeks basically so a solid three weeks i was just so almost discouraged but at the same time um fueled you know to speak speak up but I think I as soon as I started reading this I really just like it all hit me kind of and I was like oh my goodness like I've experienced this I can relate and it was it was it was all put into words and I've never been able to do that so that was that was really interesting she she did that so well and i think the power of that um can i read just a a part of it um Mm -hmm. this is from the first chapter most americans know nothing about asian americans they think chinese is synecdoche for asians the way kleenex is for tissues they don't understand that we're this tenuous alliance of many nationalities there are so many qualifications weighing the we in asian america Do I mean Southeast Asian, South Asian, East Asian and Pacific Islander, queer and straight, Muslim and non-Muslim, rich and poor? Are all Asians self-hating? What if my cannibalizing ego is not a racial phenomenon, but my own damn problem? Koreans are self-hating, a Filipino friend corrected me over drinks. Filipinos, not so much. It's a unique situation or condition that's distinctly Asian in that some of us are economically doing better than any other minority group, but we barely exist anywhere in the public eye. And then she goes on about the invisibility. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, but that's an example of what she's giving voice to 
I don't know what part stood out to you that really helped, but I love her title too, Minor Feelings. It, it speaks to what we were talking mm-hmm. about, like, do our yes. feelings count? You know, well, it's not mm-hmm. as bad as, or, you know. Uh... Right. And I think, I think her, the entire book, I think, really describes that trapped feeling that, at least for myself, that I've felt of, okay, am I, like, do I count as a minority? Or obviously I don't count as white, but then I, they almost, they do, people do count me like that. And I, it's just feeling, just the feeling of feeling trapped. That's not a minor feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I really like this book and I've, I've recommended it to my parents and friends and now everyone everyone in my life wants to read this. So I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, it's a book for this time and I think for this generation too. Mm-hmm. I think it describes everything very well and that it's a great resource if people are wanting to learn more and trying to understand. What is that API experience what is the ambiguity and the invisibility mm-hmm. what is the rage and the frustration yeah I, I agree yeah sometimes it's just we've I think we've been silenced almost for so long and now this is our chance to really speak up raise awareness just defy those stereotypes that have been given to us get out of the trap I agree Mm-hmm. it's overdue and if we can do that and then fight you know for fight against invisibility of other groups as well by working on our own struggles work with other groups so that it doesn't become a zero-sum game that groups are not pitted against each other then that that would be my hope for this time mm-hmm. and I think also one thing I've, I've never really understood is why is there you know, racism amongst different minority groups. Because in my in my mind, I think we should all stand together and fight any oppression and racism that we f- have felt and not be like, oh, I've experienced more than you or, you know, this movement or whatever matters more, you know. It should, it should be we support each movement and we all want to... The end goal should be we all want to fight that oppression and racism not want to fight each other that's the insidiousness of um not naming white supremacy and that's different than saying white people it's not it's not the same thing the ideology that our country is steeped in from the beginning where from the earliest times in our dna as a country uh we have behaved in ways that reinforce a racial hierarchy. And so we're all buying into the hierarchy and buying for our way, you know, up the hierarchy rather than questioning the whole structure. And I think that's the moment we're in. Instead of fighting for crumbs, who's going to be a little bit higher up on a hierarchy that we don't examine is we're all in our own ways and places, at least many of us trying to dismantle that structure. That's a huge mm. undertaking and it's, it's, there's been a lot of cost already, so many lives, you know, um, but naming that and seeing it, I think that's part of trying to name and see and call out racism for it is for what it is. And again, for me, that's, that's connected to, but not equivalent to calling out every person. I feel like we're all growing, we're all learning, we're all socialized within our regional context, within our generational context. And, you know, we need to give each other room to grow. It's not like if we're all just called out on our worst moments, none of us would make it, you know? Um, None of us Mm -hmm. would be so perfect to, to be, considered you know woke enough or whatever but so i i feel the danger of cancel culture but naming racism naming white supremacy naming the hierarchy and how all of us even by absorbing the internalized oppression we're reinforcing it like we have to call it out in ourselves too, like stand against it but 
but trying to work together to do that. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's really challenging, but that's the goal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was your reaction and I guess what were the thoughts running through your mind when you heard about the Atlanta shooting? Oh, it was just heartbreaking and and infuriating you know that the that the you know officer the law enforcement officer would frame that as a bad day or um mm -hmm. refuse to see you know the, the the sexualized nature of it would eliminate the the racism you know that how racism and oppression expresses itself and the the intersectionality of that like that would be enough to get get the shooter as well as the whole system and way of thinking you know it's it's the shooter yes but it's not just an individual it's the whole societal context that allows it to be read in that way as completely mm -hmm. diminishing and eliminating the the racialized nature of the attack um yeah so I had a lot of feelings and my sister lives in Atlanta. So I was immediately, you know, for personal reasons, really concerned mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. How about you? Yeah, I think for me, I think I was, I mean, one, I wasn't surprised there was a shooting. I feel like I'm people have become so desensitized almost because they have, they're so common now, unfortunately. Um, but the fact that it targeted people who look like me, that, that really hurt. And also, I mean, not even just that shooting, but also the other hate crimes going, people walking on the streets and they're just being beat up. No reason. But, and it just hurts that people like me are being hurt. Um, and I, I that's, it's just, it's really frustrating and, and sad, but I think it also, I, I kind of thought this is our time to really speak up. Like we can't let this pass over um, and let this, I guess, opportunity to, um, to take a stand go away. Yeah. If not now, when would we? And, and the power mm -hmm. in having people across groups stand together uh, you know, how, how encouraging it is, how empowering it is, um, and how important it is across communities to keep doing that. Because once we only feel it just for our own group and not for others, then we're splintered again, you know? Um, mm -hmm. so that commitment to, to justice I think our own group experiences can just bring it really close to home so that you feel it and see it and then you use it to work to eliminate it where there's no exceptions to that. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think I think you're right. And I right now I'm just thinking about like all the different experiences I've had of the, the even just the slightest bits of microaggressions or racism you know and or just even being somewhere and knowing I I stand out um and like I over the summer I was in Boise Idaho um for a few weeks and I happened to be downtown one day and that same day there was a Blue Lives Matter protest at um at the, the city hall and Idaho is an open carry so there is assault rifles which I don't understand why anyone needs one, you know, for their own, per you know, why do you need that? But people were carrying assault rifles, like other guns and, you know, all the, the MAGA hats, the the flags, everything. And I was walking and we we're like, we're, we're leaving, um, going back to our car when we saw it. And we we're like, oh my goodness. And as I was walking to cross the street, I saw a, a man sitting in like a, a lawn chair or whatever and I could just see his eyes on me like staring me down and I just felt so uncomfortable and unsettled that sounds really terrifying you know just 
that that self-consciousness and you know we're talking it's a little ironic we're talking about in being invisible but when you're hyper visible in that way because you're the only one or just you stand out in that way that that's mm-hmm. so uncomfortable and i think also this ties back to the book minor feelings in the sense that after, as when that happened i was like it I was like, was he looking at me just because, you know, I was walking across the street or was he looking at me because I'm Asian? And I was like, oh, well, maybe it's just because I was walking. But I was like, no, I don't think it was. But then I was doubting myself. The insidious nature of racism where you have to, you, you, that's a constant second guessing. What was that? What was the, what was the underlying meaning of that? And you think of all that energy towards trying to second guess yourself or trying to interpret what a reality may or may not have been and you think that's a lot of energy spent towards racism you know that's Mm -hmm. there are health consequences for that um yeah so this this uh idea now that racism is a public health crisis it's so important because it's not just a feeling um and we shouldn't minimize feelings either but it's health, it's lifespan, it's vulnerability, it's access to care, it's quality of care, it's all these things together. So these feelings translate into systemic issues really quickly. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree with that. I think before we wrap everything up, I, I just was, I'm going to ask, are there any resources that you would recommend in countering the racist rhetoric and work to stop Asian hate? Well, we all come from our different positions, right? Our positionalities, our experiences. I think raising awareness, just like for any group. Um, Education helps. I mean, it's not everything, but it's a really good start. So that openness, the humility required to learn, really learn what another group has gone through. Uh, being at a institution like LMU, I'd say take classes in ethnic studies, you know, take Asian and Asian American studies courses. I used to teach an Asian American psychology course in the department. And I know that's still being offered by father Paul Wu, but this can be so empowering. If you're a member of that group to kind of give voice to experience, just like the way that you're talking about Kathy Park Hong's book is doing for you in reading it but understanding these processes that you're not alone that the the literature on it the research that i mean that's how i got into asian american mental health it was really helpful and then if you're not a member of the group feeling invited in and and wanting to learn you know about the experience of groups other than your own connecting making connections, growing awareness. I think that would be a great antidote against hate just in general, but uh, we need, we need this kind of education and an openness to others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree. Thank you so much for joining this podcast today. We really appreciate it and all the insight you had to offer. Well, I just enjoy the conversation, Anne. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you.